Welcome to The Alex Tremble Show, where we share the strategies and secrets you need to know in order to successfully increase your influence, build strategic networks, and advance in your career. An award-winning speaker, author, and leadership coach, Alex brings executive leaders from across the world to share their inspirational stories and insights to help you become an exceptional public servant while also reaching your career goals. Without further ado, here's your host, Alex D. Tremble. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Tremble, and today's guest is Dr. David Smith. Dr. Smith is an associate professor of sociology at the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. His area of focus and research lies in gender, work, and family issues to include gender bias. Um, Dr. Smith, honestly, is just a cool dude. Uh, and, and, and again, because this is Women's History Month, we wanted to make sure that we are not only um, uh, raising up and elevating the voices of the many women who have just accomplished so much within their lives and for our society as a whole, but we also wanted to take some time to talk about how men can be better allies of women, how we can remove the barriers that we and sometimes unknowingly put up in front of these women. So we wanted to bring on Dr. Smith because he is not only the author of two phenomenal books. The first is Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace, but also Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. Uh, This is just two very important uh, topics to me right now. And I'm hoping that, and I'm sure that when you listen to this interview, you are going to find so much value. If you're a man, you're going to say, oh my goodness, these are things I need to do in my life. Let me stop making these, stop putting my foot in my mouth. And if you're a woman, I hope that you take this and share it with someone else and say, look, this is how you can help. This is how you can stop um, uh, unknowingly putting barriers in front of me, my sisters, my mothers, and so on and so forth. Um, This is going to be a lot of fun in this conversation, I promise you. And I'll let you know, let you know this real quick. If you enjoyed this conversation, if you enjoyed this interview, you need to listen to the interview just before this one from Joy Nicole. Um, She is also a wonderful, wonderful woman. but she connected me with Dr. Smith. So if you love this, you're gonna love hers. Um, Look, I'm gonna stop talking. Let's get to the interview. (laughs) Hello everyone, this is the Alex Trimble Show and I'm so glad to have you here with us today. Today we have a phenomenal leader, which I've been been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I got some questions I wanna pepper him with. I'm gonna start this off really, really tough too. Um, We have uh, Dave Smith. Um, How you doing today, Dave? I'm doing great. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Um, I, I want us to start off on 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 the right foot, and I want to throw something at you very difficult. Um, so, you you are Doctor Smith. Actually, you are actually Doctor Smith. So, what was your most difficult surgery that you've performed? Yeah, and as my daughter would say, he's not the kind of doctor that helps people. Oh, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> so, my, my most difficult surgery was probably removing a splinter out of one of my kids' hands at some point in their, in their early years. <laughs> and I'm sure they appreciated it. Uh, well, they might have. That might have caused them more pain than the splinter was causing, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, th- th- again, thank you so much for joining us, uh, uh, Dave. So you serve as the as- associate professor um, for sociology at the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Navy War College. Um, your focus is on, on, on gender and dual family uh, and, and military families and, and women. Why? Why? Um, if I can add this last part in, you're a former military pilot. So you've done some really cool stuff. And why are you not, why are you just focused on this stuff? Yeah, great, great question. And one that uh, I get, get quite a bit. Um, and so just a little background, I think is helpful to, to get you there. and. So I, um, 
I met my wife, um, who is also a graduate of the Naval Academy. We're both graduates, classmates there. And, you know, one of the things I noticed in her career is, is we, you know, our careers went in parallel. Um, you know, obviously we talked about it, different experiences we had over, over the years. And she definitely experienced things very differently than I did. And she got asked to do things and asked about things that I never as a guy would have been asked um, or experienced. And so it was really eye-opening for me, you know, to understand and kind of see gender equity and how it plays out in a very personal way for me. And, and it was very frustrating sometimes because it's, there's not a lot, you know, as a partner that you can, you can always do other than be there for your partner as they're enduring that. But I think for me, that wasn't enough that uh, was incumbent upon me as a leader that to understand her experiences, then go back and look in my own organization and see where I see some of these same processes or practices or things happening to people in ways, again, that just really get in touch with your sense of fairness and justice about how people are treated. And, and, and I think that that to a large degree informed a lot of my practical experiences. Um, of course, I also, from a research perspective, I spent, as I said, I spent many years as a Navy pilot, but the last part of my career, um, I went back to grad school, got my PhD in sociology. Uh, my, my specialty areas are in military sociology and social psychology, but my research, like you said, was in gender work and family. And so in particular, looking at dual career, dual military families and looking at the gendered perspectives about decision-making that happens at the family and at the career the career level and how different practices and policy and processes, again, impact that in different ways, gendered ways for, for men and women. And so that was where I got my start. And uh, of course, today, um, I, you know, I taught at the Naval Academy for many years after my PhD. And I met my good friend and colleague, Dr. Brad Johnson, who's a clinical psychologist, prior Navy officer in the Medical Service Corps. And and Brad's focus was always on mentoring relationships, but we recognized that we had this overlap in our research interests and our personal connections around the idea that, you know, the playing field just isn't quite as level as it should be when it comes to access to resources and, and certainly things really important around career development um, in terms of leadership for, for women and, and not just for women, but, but for other people as well. And so we set out to do the research for our first book, Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women, which was really designed to how do we engage men more in understanding their role in creating equity in the workplace and how can they be better at it, right? Give them the tools, right? To go back in there and not to rescue, but to actually come alongside with, with women and understanding how we can work together to do this. And so that led to our first book of Athena Rising. But the about a year after that book came out, that came out in 2016 and 2017, Me Too went widespread. And Brad and I found ourselves being pulled more into this conversation about what does it look like more broadly, not just in mentoring or sponsoring relationships, but more broadly, how do we just show up in the workplace every day as men with our colleagues, our female colleagues there? And so that led to this conversations around allyship and our new research for our new book, Good Guys, that came out uh, just in October. And this is about how men can be better allies for women in the workplace. And so that's how we kind of got to where we are today. And um, it's been, a you know, I think with with most uh, researchers and people who do work in this area, it's a, it's a journey. And it's certainly been one where we've learned a lot along the way as well. Well, thank you so much for that uh, wonderful opening, um, because again, you, you've, you've laid the, the, the groundwork for a lot of great questions and interesting conversation. Um, you mentioned the Me Too movement, and I, I, you and I had some conversation about this prior to, and you know, there being, you know, there was a lot of reporting that men definitely felt uncomfortable. Um, engaging in uh, mentoring relationships with women at that point, which is a bad thing, right? It's a really bad thing. Um, but you shared that the research actually showed that prior to Me Too, that men had this this hesitancy to do this. Can, can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, interestingly, you know, when we were doing the research for Athena Rising, so this is in 2014, 2015. So prior to the 2017 Me Too really garnering lots of attention, we heard from so many men in the interviews we, we did for Athena Rising about all the reasons that men were reluctant to engage in, in professional developmental relationships in the workplace. And 
there are actually so many of them. We we named it in the book. There's a there's a section of the book called reluctant male syndrome. Um, you know, making a little fun of it, but at the same time, it's real and it existed. You know, before me too. And and this is everything from how, in particular, men. Uh, how often we we look at, at at women maybe a little bit differently in terms of who they are as leaders. So our perception of them is different. That maybe she's not strong enough, or she's not really leader material, or that she's a risky investment because I think she's this. One guy said, "Ticking time bomb of maternity." She's just going to start popping out babies suddenly, and I'm going to lose her. Yeah. And so, why should I invest all this time in her? And they had this perception. Other guys told us that now, nah, just kind of anxious about, you know, I'm not really sure what does that look like. What's the script I follow to have a professional relationship with a woman in the workplace who's, you know, it's it's intimate, but it's at the same time it's non-sexual, right? So, what does that look like? It's like you know, I have family members. I know what it looks like to have a relationship with my mom, with my wife, my sister. If you have a daughter, but I don't know what that looks like. And so, guys got uncomfortable. And the minute that you get uncomfortable, what do you do? Naturally, as humans, we we avoid it, right? That's discomfort. Just go and get away from it. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, and and of course, there's the the issue of perceptions too around how are people going to see us? You know, if I'm in a in a professional relationship with a woman, starts suddenly spending lots of time with this particular, maybe a junior woman, maybe younger, um, what will people say? You know, what will my colleagues say? Will they have something to talk about? And then some men even said that they were concerned about what their their partner, their spouse would say. Um, about, again, spending lots of time with this uh, with this junior person. So there were lots of these reasons already out there before Me Too even even hit. Well, you know, I think the the perceptions and the thoughts that people have in their head are are powerful, right? Like they, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be in like, like intentionally overtly trying to hurt someone, but because they may have these thoughts in their head, they are in, inadvertently hurting people because they're not allowing the opportunity. Um, it actually made me think of this, this, um, I, I once had a program dealing with Latinos and I, I went and spoke to a leader about, you know, how do we get um, more Latinos hired into your organization? And the response was, I don't have any problem with hiring more Latinos, but how can they do the job if they can't speak English? It was like, what? <laughs> the, the, the perception in his head yeah. was that Latinos don't speak English, right? Um, and so that, and he wasn't trying to be, I mean, from the externally, what I can see and what I could talk to him, he wasn't trying to be mean. He, he honestly just didn't know. Um, and he, he really thought that. So, you know, these perceptions are are important. So, I guess how how do you what does that mean for for men? Like, what how do you go about identifying these blind spots? Right, if they if they actually believe these things, how do, how do they identify these blind spots and and then change that way of thinking? Yeah, and that's a great question, Alex. That there's not one single answer to that. It really kind of depends on. So if it's the perceptions issue in particular, so this gets speaks to implicit associations or unconscious biases. A lot of people are becoming a lot more familiar with these days, and and really understanding what that is and developing an awareness and an understanding of how that plays out. So. For example, these can also be thought about, about, you can think about it as assumptions we make about other people. So from a gender perspective, if I, if I have a woman who works with me and there's this great opportunity coming up, but I go, wow, but you know, it's got a lot of travel um, and she's just had a baby and ah, it's probably not the right thing for her. So I'm just not even going to, I'm not even going to bother her with it because she, it's not, it's probably not a good fit for her and I'm going to, I'm going to help her. And that's and this is and this gets into this overlap into kind of this rescuing mode a little bit too, right? Because now I'm trying to I'm in this benevolent mode of doing what's best for her, and I've actually just taken away all of her decision making power, right? And not let her choose and make that decision for herself. And there's all of these different kinds of assumptions that we make about different people. Again, we're removing uh, that power to, to choose a power to make it, make their own decision in doing that. And and in many cases, these assumptions just aren't valid, right? Um, they might be in some cases, they might not be in others. Right. But if we give people the opportunity just to make their own decisions, then I think that's one way to do it. But the solution, wow. You know, so developing awareness and understanding is one part of it. The, um, the other part, I think around relationships in particular, this discomfort piece is, you know, if, 
if the clinical psychologist was here, Brad, he would tell you that it's, it's exposure therapy. It's not less interaction, it's more interaction, right? So now you got to go have more coffees, more lunches, more Zoom meetings, more opportunities where you're spending time together. And as we get, we spend more time together, we get to build connection, right? And then we begin to develop empathy, right? And the minute you start down that path, this is, you know, in psychology, this is well well known as the mere exposure effect, right? That we we begin to build a a kindness, a a liking, right? An enjoying about being a a colleague with someone at that point. And all those barriers come down. And then you can, then the curiosity comes up. And then then curiosity happens, we can ask questions. And now I can ask you about your experiences and, and I can get, Hey, uh, I can get feedback on how am I doing at the same time, and, and get you know now we're in a dialogue, and so we start to break down those barriers. So, so I, I'm I'm hearing I'm hearing ask at the bare base baseline fundamental ask questions. You know, um, I guess the uh, uh, assumptions makes an ass out of you and me, right? Um, yeah. so, um, being willing to ask this, those questions. And again, because I feel safe with you right now, so I'm gonna ask you some questions. Um, what if you don't have the right words, right? And yeah. you feel like you're trying to ask the right question, but you you get yourself in trouble because it's not framed right. Like how, 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 how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a that's such a great question, you know, and and certainly something right now in this this time, uh, especially in our country right now, that around race, around gender diversity, so many people are walking on eggshells. They're afraid to make a mistake, and you know, it, it actually works against us, right? In, in trying to problem solve and trying to mm-hmm. move forward. Um, it, it stops the conversations as opposed to increasing the conversations, which is what we need to have right now. And so um, I think that's a, that's a great point is, you know, what do we do about that? And so many men in both books, the interviews we did told us that, that this is one of the things that, Hey, you know, I'm all about diversity. I'm all about inclusion and equity and okay, but what are you doing? Well, I'm a, I'm not doing a whole lot because I'm really afraid to make a mistake. I'm really afraid that I'm going to make, I'm going to stick my foot right in my mouth (laughs) and start chewing on it here at this point. And, and you know what, the reality is that all of us do that, you know, we're all going to do that along the way. And, you know, we've gotten to the point where we, we, we need just a little more grace uh, with each other and, and being able to understand good intentions and, and being able to provide, you know, and have a civil dialogue about this and, People make mistakes, you know, and, and that's how you learn, right? And we're and we're going to do that along the way. I'm I'm not perfect. I'm just another bumbling dude out there trying to get it right, and trying to be better every single day. And and once I can accept that imperfection, that somewhere along the way today I'm going to mess it up, <laughs> and Alex is going to have to deal with it here. It's okay, you know. Alex is gonna he's going to have a little grace with me, and and I, we're, we're going to get through this together. And and you know what? The world's not going to end. Life's not going to end right here today we're going to be better at the end of it but until we can get to that point where we can accept that we can um we can have a little imperfection it's really hard to do the key element in all this just like any relationship is really how do you develop that relationship to the point where you have trust right where we can have that we've got to have enough trust to be able to ask those questions and and to have a conversation out there and you know, and we heard this, you know, over and over again since last summer with the George Floyd murder in particular, around the kind of racial tension and awakening, you know, we're having in this country that, gosh, you know, it's not okay just to go, just because you have a, a black friend or a black colleague to just go ask, start asking them questions about, hey, what's, what's going on in your world out there? And, and why, you know, why, why isn't it working for you? And it's not okay to do that, right? That you're just putting it back on others to educate you. No, that just shows that you have the privilege to be able to do that. You got to first take ownership of it. As, a, as an ally, you need to go self-educate and they need to come listen to this podcast. And they need to go read a good book and they need to go listen to a webinar and, and, and listen, just listen to understand. And I think that that is the first step, right? In, in building that empathy, right? Is if we, if we can listen to understand and then begin to look around and observe and go, hmm, 
um, what are the places around here where I see the connections to that and that I can make a difference in my world and, and then develop the, the relationships with the trust with your colleagues so that you can, you can have these kind of conversations because until you get to that point, you have enough, you know, again, trust in your relationships. It's really hard to move forward. Well, first of all, actually, you reminded me, everyone who's listening, please don't be mad at me earlier when I was like this stuff, you know, researching this stuff. I was just joking. I'm, I don't want to get canceled. Um, so, <laughs> and I do, I do want to say, I want to appreciate you, you making that, that point about the questions. I myself, um, I used to be a huge, huge proponent of having those difficult conversations because that's how you learn. Um, um, and so when, after George Floyd, George Floyd happened, I, I allowed myself to be open for any questions, right? And it got to a point where I was like, no, I can't keep talking about this. I, it was just, it was really draining. It was hard. I felt my, found myself getting annoyed and upset. I'm like, why are you asking me this? Go do, here's a book. Like here, go read this book. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I appreciate you bringing that up. Like, you know, guys just can't just go walk them. Hey, what, what is it like? Like do some research, do your homework and show that you've even tried to. Like, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And I, I, you know, and I, I try to walk that talk every day too. And uh, I think for some of us, especially as academics, that comes a little easier because that's just kind of part of the job for us as well. But, but even, even, you know, even as academics, we still have to do that for ourselves. I can tell you that um, I know, I remember back in, gosh, it was like October in the fall when uh, Harvard Business Review came to, to me and Brad and asked us to, they said, hey, we want you to write an article in, your, in the magazine coming up, the next issue, that talks about allyship, but we want you to talk about it from a race intersectional perspective around gender and race, so about women of color. So what can white men, what should white men be doing to be better allies to women of color? Mm. And we're like, wow, um, okay, appreciate this, but... Um, we we need to, we need some help and and so we we reached out to a couple of our our female colleagues who were women of color who were experts in race and um and and partnered with them to write this article and it was it was it was so much fun and we learned so much along the way together just thinking about our work with their work and what was really clear you know when they came to us they said okay we need you guys to do the some of the practical application part around allyship with this and so they said, "Hey, go back to your research and look at the uh, look at all the tactical everyday actions and strategies that you had in the book, and how do they apply here? How can can we can you translate? Can you convert that, so to speak, right into this into this article?" And as it turned out, almost everything around allyship translates so very neatly. And of course, you know, allyship's been around for a long time. I mean, it started in the LGBT community. Uh, much you know, and then, and then more focus on race, and now much more on gender, and so this, and now in a much more of an intersectional focus as well, which I think is great to finally get to that conversation. But um, but yeah, it was great to to finally get out there and to to talk about this more broadly, not just in a in a very narrow sense. Well, well, I'm not going to ask you to share all your secrets, and I, I want everyone to go out and buy his the, the two books. One is. Um, uh, good guys, how men can be better allies for women in the workplace. And the other is Athena Rising, correct? Athena correct. Rising. How and why men should mentor women. So everyone, push pause, go buy those. <laughs> now that you're back, okay, cool. Um, we'll keep going. Um, I, I did have, uh, I mean, could, would you speak just a little more on that? Like, were there any specific things that you found to be um, helpful in regards to allyship for white men to um, African-American women um, that, that you found to be unique? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things, and this, and this came out in our research for, for good guys, it was very clear that, uh, that, you know, in your making, not making assumptions, right. One of those not making assumptions is that all women are the same. Right. Just because you're a woman doesn't mean you all, all women's experience the same. <laughs> Just like guys, you know, as dudes, we're, we're not a monolith. Guess what? Women aren't either. What? Go figure. Right. Yeah. There's a newsflash. And and but interestingly, that's one of those things that we, we make assumptions about. Right. That, hey, you're a woman. Therefore, it must apply to, to you. Right. That OK. So 
start there. And then from there, start looking at, all right, so how do people's differences, how do we see differences in how people experience the workplace, for example? Um, and certainly around women of color, there were there were lots of stories we had in in Good Guys about this. And, you know, we, we, we heard so many of these, the, the common refrains you often hear that the that women of color will tell you that, hey, I have to work twice as hard to get half as far. This is the double jeopardy uh, notion, and 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 very true. And and the and the, certainly the research and the uh, outcomes back that up. But then there's a you know there's another perspective to that this is the when when they talk about how gosh you know there's times when I just feel invisible, like I could be standing on the center of the table and nobody would actually hear me. Yeah, or see yeah. me or value me for who I am and, and my contributions for what they are in a way that, you know, again, white women can say the same thing, but it, it's not the same in different spaces. And, um, but those are very different perspectives on, uh, from, you know, again, from, from women of color and to say that, you know, all black women's experiences are the same is not, you know, again, another assumption right there, right? There's other intersections there that come around race, I mean, I'm sorry, class and uh, age and mm -hmm. um, nationality, you know, certainly is a huge one. I, you can have this conversation over in Europe right now. It sounds very different. Um, and, and so, because the history is different, right? The history in the United States around race is so different than it is when you go to other locations locations. So the history is important. You have to know that. And otherwise you will, you'll, you'll go out there and make that assumption and potentially stick your foot in your mouth. That said, if you have washed your feet, then maybe it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Alex Tremble show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WAPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been ensuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com slash courses slash networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code PODCASTFAMILY on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com slash courses slash networking. And now back to the Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. I, so you you got me thinking. Um, I, I do want to ask. I know you you you. It seems like your research has gone um, from the the male allyship side. Um, do you have any thoughts of you know, you know this is the reality right now. And this is what you're telling men, men need to be doing things differently. What do women do given this is the reality? Do, do, do you have any thoughts on that? How, how should they use your research and your, in, in the, the, the advice that you've provided? Yeah, and that's a great question. And one that we, we do talk quite a bit about that because again, you know, allyship is about partnership. You know, this is about, from a gender perspective, this is gender partnership. And, and so we don't, do anything you know without women involved in that we're doing it with them right in, in an alliance and so certainly women have a role in in that and and it's not women's role to to fix uh necessarily to fix men <laughs> just like it's not our role to fix mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. um and 
you know, and, and they didn't create the current workplace. It was us as guys, we, you know, men, and especially white men, we were the ones who created the workplace and structured it the way it is to, to make it very uh, seamless and, and comfortable for us. And for the most part, you know, we, we talk about that's our privilege, right? That I don't think about a lot of these things because they just happen naturally. Whereas other people in the workplace, no, that's just not, that's not how it works. And I do have to think about all these other things out there. And so certainly one of the things that I, I think for women, they ought to be thinking about is, you know, so who are those guys where they can begin to collaborate and, and work with them in different kinds, you know, pull them aside in relationships and, and have these kinds of conversations and build that trust and then begin to expand that, right? And, and thinking about who are the other guys there that we can begin to pull into this conversation, especially if, in having them understand that no matter what level of leadership they're in, what level of kind of influence they have in an organization, they do have the ability to influence others because they, they do have a, a certain amount of privilege once they recognize what it is and then what they can do with it, they can make a difference every day. And, and so kind of sharing some of that and, and working together and how we do that, I think is so important. And, you know, there is a little bit of an educational perspective there, I think for, for women in what they're doing and giving feedback to men, but it also allows them to, you know, have that collaboration and to use that um, as well from a sponsoring and an advocacy perspective as well to be able for having these men open the doors and share their social capital with women as they begin to understand why that's important. One of the ways that we've seen this happen in organizations from a more formal or structural way is uh, again, we see lots of employer resource groups in companies today. They've become you know, very popular. While in, they started off often you know, as an affinity group and being kind of informal, they have more formal structure today and starting to be better resourced, although we've got a long way to go with that mm-hmm. in terms of paying people for their time um, and their work. But a women's ERG often, you know, while that has been looked at as a safe space for women to to come together and, and to talk about some of the challenges they're dealing with and solutions to that and to network and to resource and, and, and to do all that, which is important for them to do. Um, but they've often learned that, you know, inviting men into this conversation or into this space has been really valuable. And for, I think for, you know, to think about who are those men that I ought to be inviting in there, I think is a, is a great conversation for those women to be having. And, and then to leverage them, right? And then how can those guys think about, all right, so who are the, who are the other guys out there who kind of get it? Let's start with that group that gets mm-hmm. it first, bring them in, let's help make, you know, and help them to see more and then they can, they can work. And we can just kind of, from a grassroots perspective, start to grow this out. A best practice we've seen has been for these women's ERGs then to create an offshoot adjunct, uh, kind of a male allies group that's connected. Yeah that's tied to the women's ERG, right? But it's kind of their separate group um, and they can share in programming. They can share in resources in some cases uh, and help them bringing more resources to the table, um, the different events that they're doing, speakers, all of these different uh, kind of initiatives that they might have, they can work together and they can role model gen- what gender partnership looks like. Um, we often find that it's helpful to have a co-chair for the women's ERG, that's a guy, and then for the men's ERG, have have a woman, or yeah. not a men's ERG, but a male allies group, have yeah. a woman as the co-chair, right? Again, role model the behavior and what it looks like, increase interaction, increase working together, uh, I think really moves the needle forward. And I think some companies have had a lot of fun with this one. Um, I'll give you one example, uh, Bear Monsanto, Again, huge global corporation, right? So they have a, a women is uh, women in science and engineering. Wise is their acronym they have for their uh, their women's ERG. Great group, really proactive. They've had men involved in that for a long time, and they over the last few years had decided to hey, we want to create a, a male allies group as part of this, and they did, and they formalized it. And it is it's it's connected. Um, they have co-chairs, just like I was talking about, um, and then they had a little fun with the title for the for the men too. And their 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 group is called the Wise Guys, of course. You know, <laughs> I, I just love that. You know, <laughs> so they use the women in science, you know, women in science and engineering acronym they have for the women's ERG, just added guys, and they have a little fun with it. And they, what a great example yeah. in partnership. <laughs> 
partnership, having fun with it. I I, I love Can't it. Can't have fun. Why do it? Why not do it? You know. So you, I, I love that you made this transition into talking about the workplace. I, I do have a question on. Um, as, as I look around, you know, you're, there's a big push about boards, right? Looking at boards, looking at leadership teams. It's one thing to talk about how you support equity and diversity. That's great. Um, I want to see people in positions. <laughs> I want to see them in positions. So, you know, is it is it appropriate to to hire someone based on their gender because you want to intentionally diversify your board. Um, obviously they're gonna be qualified, but but do you believe it's appropriate to be intentional in that way? Yeah, you know, this is this is always a, the, one of the challenges and the tensions around diversity and, you know, and, and certainly equity, I think, is, is what we're get, trying to get to. And it, it's interesting to look at the research and how people have approached this, organizations, countries, governments have approached this in terms of looking at, you know, their own representation and trying to get there and what works. And, um, and certainly, you know, if you put, if you just kind of leave it to people, groups of people, whether it's an organization or a government, whatever, um, you might find some, just on the periphery, some, some things starting to move a little bit, but, you know, unless there's some sort of an incentive, right, to really change the status quo, what's going to change it, right? What What is actually going to force people to move? And so th that brought up the, you know, the question around quotas, right? And well, we're just going to establish a quota system. And, and the reality is that quotas do work, okay? They do, obviously, if you have a quota and, and it's by regulation, policy, law, that it's going to happen. And guess what? It, cha it changes things. It's one way to do it. It's a very kind of a, you know, we're going to force it. We're going to put a wrench on it and force it to happen at this point. Um, but it does work. It does have a lot of negative consequences to it because, again, people don't like feeling like there's some sort of lack of choice or, and, and I think there's a lot of people don't want to be that diversity hire, right? That I, I don't want you to think, I don't want to be hired because I'm a woman or because, you know, I'm a person of yeah, color. Yeah. No, I, you know, um, so the other one is targets and, and targets is, you know, is a different way to kind of think about if somewhere in between just kind of leaving it, you know, Hey, this, you should be doing this to, here's your quota. No, targets are kind of in the middle. It's a goal, right? That we're going to shoot for. Targets work really well. Goals work. If you just set, if you set formal, explicit goals, targets for, for organizations, they work really well. So that's another way to think about doing this. The, the, the other part of this we haven't talked about is kind of the pipeline, the process for this. And remember yeah. that, again, research shows if you will at least start with a diverse uh, pool of applicants or people that are being considered, whether it's a board or a senior leadership team position, odds are you're going to get more, you're going to get more diverse selects. Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. It's just the numbers work out that way. Cause the problem is, is you always, the, the excuse that we hear is, oh, there's not enough people who applied or there's not enough people in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. It's a pipeline problem. Trust me, there are plenty of qualified people out there. The question is, are you going, are you out there really, um, getting outside your normal methods mm -hmm. of finding these people and getting them into the pool to do it. One, uh, I'll, just, I'll leave you with this one. One uh, interviewee we had, uh, senior leader in the in the in in education, he said, you know, when I'm hiring for a senior leadership position, and and I'm looking and I'm thinking about the pool of applicants out there, I'm not thinking about, you know, you know, how do I get. Uh, somebody to apply. I'm thinking about what's keeping the most qualified applicant from applying. Oh, I like that. So you're just kind of flipping it on its head. It's like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. You know, instead of putting it on, you know, it's on us, it's like them. It's like, what's keeping them from applying? What's keeping them from being in my pool today? Why am I not seeing them? And that gets you back thinking about it in a very different way to get to solutions, I think, that are much more effective. I, I really like that approach. Um, I'm not going to use the, the expression that everyone else says. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to permanently borrow it from you. Um, and I will be utilizing that at some point. <laughs> we call that, since you're a dude, we call that bro-propriation, right? 
but only only if you're stealing from women. So I guess it's not really bro appropriation if you're stealing it from another dude. I don't know. Okay. But that's what women would call it if you steal their idea. I'm I'm using that. I'm using that too. <laughs> I guess I can't. I can't use it. I can't use it. My wife. You, I'll tell my wife. She'll use it. <laughs> you can heat peat me all you want. <laughs> but, but, so so by uh so I you know <laughs> the the token question comes up um and it makes me just mm -hmm. as you talk about that I understand some people don't want to be that that token um and it is funny because I've been asked that a lot you know during my career and especially because I've quote unquote been relatively successful in what I do as a black man um and the it's like quote that, 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 that token question always comes up and how I always answered is you know look my race has been used against me so much um, throughout my life that if I had an opportunity to have it used for me, um, I got it, I'm gonna take it. And um, there was an opportunity that I, I realized that I was, uh, this is me being honest, I, I, I realized once I got into it, I realized that I was brought in because I was the black guy, they need some color. Um, but then I super performed and I just kept moving up, moving up, moving up, moving up. And so I, I guess, you know, me personally, I always tell someone like, look, I, I'd rather take the opportunity than not, um, if I think it's gonna be in my best interest. Um, but again, I also know that other people don't feel that way and they, they, they may not feel comfortable um, in an organization that may not, may not necessarily value from the jump. And again, me just, just talking off the top of my head right now, I, I just also at the same time, I'm so torn because if someone doesn't come in and try to change it, it'll never change, right? Like someone has to be the person who comes in. Yeah, and I, I think we we lose sight of what, you know, when, when we're talking about diversity, you know, and trying to look at it from a representation perspective in a, on a team, which is important, right, at the end of the day. But if we don't create the environment on the team Again, even if we went out there and said, all right, we're going to have one of each of all these things, all these kinds of people on our team um, that are important to us. So we don't all look or, or think the same. But if we don't create an environment where, you know, Alex and Dave can come together and collaborate, right? We can get creative. We can get innovative. Um, we can think differently. Or I can, I can actually sit here and listen to you and appreciate and value what you're bringing and go, ooh. I never thought about it that way. Oh, wow. You mean there people think about it this? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. If we don't create that environment and we're, and we're just 10 people off in our corners of the world, it's not going to change a damn thing. Right. It's only when we have diversity with the inclusion. Right. And actually, you know, I think most people would, would say that you actually have to have the belonging with that too. Right. The connection that, so that we can get innovative and collaborative in that world that that's where the real change begins to happen. And, and you see the, again, that it's not this fixed pie, right? This, this zero sum perspective. This is where the, this is where we really begin to grow the pie, grow the bakery or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. We're increasing that, that opportunity that is an opportunity cost. And that's the thing that, that's not being talked about is like, so when we're not thinking about increasing diversity and inclusion in our organization, we're really accepting opportunity cost because we're losing out on something. So I, I'm just, I just have to put this, this stake in the ground because you talked on a topic I, I have a pet peeve about. I, I don't, I don't like, how do I say this not get myself in trouble? Um, I don't like like diversity focused stuff. I want diversity and equity and inclusion to be woven throughout the organization. It is not just, this is a course you go to and learn about this. Um, I, I, I just don't feel like those, those work. I keep, I'm developing a program right now with, uh, with the VA and that's exactly the approach we're taking is we're integrating diversity, equity, inclusion to everything they're learning. So it's not just, oh, today's class is on this and next week we're doing something else. <laughs> and again, very evidence-based way to approach it, right? Because the research shows us that, you know, one-off, and I, I, I would include even a one-off diversity class, right? That's, you're just taking this class. Okay, great. Or certificate even. Great. Maybe you're expanding your horizon a little bit. Are you really creating change? The research would tell you no, right? These one-off trainings and classes and things like that, it, it, 
I think it, it it's often just leaders looking around who don't understand who were like, I need a solution. I got, I, here's the problem. I need a solution. Here's the solution. And and they can go, yeah, I, we do this unconscious bias training and we do this diversity training and then we do this and this and they check the block and they can feel good about themselves, I guess, you know, but they haven't really created any change. And, and I think again, you know, m- not to give unconscious bias training a, a bad name, but I mean, billions of dollars have been spent on this over the last few years and with very little result. Um, mm-hmm. In many cases, it's, it may have done more harm. Um, but the minute you integrate these kinds of things, these conversations and learning and education into the, you know, the, the normal process or practice of what you do, of who you are, that's where we see change. So if you put it into a, a normal if there's a, 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 a progression of uh, leader development in your company, and this is the normal way that things happen, integrate it there. If you have a if you have a mentoring program in your in your company that's part of who you are, what you do, integrate it there because everybody likes to do mentoring. Everybody thinks it's important. Put it in there. Make it part of the business. Don't make it this thing that's housed under HR and it's just this off to the side issue. Because just like you said. It, it becomes a, a way that people can point to and go, yeah, we do that. It's right mm-hmm. here. It's here. Yeah. But what do you got to show for it? So, so our time is starting to come to an end and man, this has been moving fast because again, I really do feel like we get to sit down and chat for hours and hours and hours. Um, but I'm not going to take up all your time. Um, I, I do want to ask you, so you, now you've written two books and you're still a professor. Um, what is next on the horizon for you? That's a great question. One that, uh, you know, my co-author Brad and I talk about quite often and, and we have, a, you know, a lot of ideas. I think, you know, to me, um, in particular, one of the ones that's really resonating with us as we think about coming out of this pandemic, hopefully really soon, sooner than later, that's been really traumatic, right, for, for people across the board. But in many ways, it's highlighted a lot of the, the the problems that have been there all along in our society and in our workplaces and our families, and and that's everything from the the gender inequity in, at home uh, around gender roles and responsibilities and unpaid labor, uh, around childcare, caregiving broadly for men and women, um, and then just the nature of work, right? About how we approach work and think about doing work, and and that's everything from you know now we can now. Flex work is no longer a four-letter word. Uh, it's flexible work, not flex mm-hmm, work. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, we're thinking about things very different. So as we move forward into this new world of work, <clears throat> I think there's some opportunities here. And and certainly one of the ones that I think Brad and I are most interested in is, is thinking about what's next in terms of, let's just press the I believe button for here for a minute. And, and we do reach more diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. What does that look like? How does, because again, I think this is one of the challenges with anytime we do integration, and I have my own experiences with integration of women into the military, was one of the things that never happened was, um, military is great about giving you regulations and structure and policy and do this and don't do this. And and those are great, right? Those are important. um, And those were much needed. But the part that never happened was, hey, you know that that all male workplace that you've been a part of for eons, <laughs> forever, um, it's going to change, and 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 here's some things we ought to be thinking about in terms of how the workplace is going to change. It should change, should be accommodated, not not to just make accommodations for women, but for all of us, right? To make it make it work better for everybody. And what what do work? How does that change leading and workplace relationships? Nobody ever talked about any of that ever, any of us. And I think that that's a conversation that needs to be had um, in this country in particular, uh, if not more globally about we're going to get there. It's going to happen one way or another faster, hopefully not, not, not take longer out there, the, the 250 some years to get the gender parity. But when it does happen, are we ready for that? And are, are women ready for that? Are men ready for that? Are, you know, again, as as white people are no longer the majority, are we ready for that? Are people of color ready to take the lead here when they're 
you know, no longer the minority and the, our country's changing, it's shifting and we need to have that conversation. I think that's something that bears a lot more thought. Um, we've, the problem is we've got lots of problems still to solve that we're working to get there, uh, which is important. But I think we also, at the same time, we're, we're making change right now. We have to think about what's coming up down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, I, I, I do want to open the floor back to you. I noticed you, you gave us a lot right now, but um, is there any final thoughts, ideas, suggestions, anything you would like to to share with those who are listening today? Um, and I'll just give the floor to you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. And I think one of the things that, you know, I'm very passionate about is, is we think about allyship in particular, that Allyship in the workplace is one thing, but, you know, from a gender perspective first that we, we need to think about, you can't just be an ally at work, you got to be an ally at home. And when it comes to gender roles in particular, mm-hmm. certainly the pandemic has made it very clear, you know, with women, the, the hundreds of thousands and, you know, women losing jobs each month, um, the more, the several million already we've lost since the pandemic started has really affected women more. And, and a lot of that is because we as men are not doing our fair share. We're not being all in equal allies at home. And so um, and in many ways, that's that's a societal thing, but they're the workplace organization have a role in that. Government has a role in that. We need to begin to think about caregiving more broadly and how do we value it and quit saying that, you know, that's an individual problem, right? No, that's a societal, that's an organizational problem, right? Because we're talking about the health and welfare of our families, the health and welfare of our companies and our organizations, businesses. We are not going to, you know, we're not going to succeed and survive if if all the women are leaving. So, I think we've got to have that conversation very quickly. I think there's some great, um, again, thought leaders out there and some real action-oriented leaders out there working on really hard right now. That uh, I think this is what I think this is what 2021 is going to be remembered for um, once the pandemic's over. <laughs> um, but, but underneath that is going to be this refocus on where what caregiving is all about and why leaders have to be involved in it. D- Dave. Again, thank you so much for for spending the time that you spent with us here today. I greatly appreciate it. I know I've learned a lot. I'm definitely going to be taking a lot of stuff with me to 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 my injury, not only at the office but at home, as you said. Um, so thank you for that. And everyone, please who's listening, um, you know, go out get. Uh, the good guys get um, Athena Rising. These are going to be phenomenal tools that you can take. You know, these resources you can take and not, again, not only impact your organization positively, but impact your home. Um, I like again. I always try to make sure I say, um, don't just look back. Re- don't just look back. Reach back. Right. So if you know of someone who who needs to hear this, you found any value in this, don't keep it to yourself, share it. So I'm going to tell everyone very specifically now, um, every woman who is listening to this right now, you need to send this this interview to at least one guy, send to at least one guy and then one of your female friends and then tell her to send it to at least one guy and one of her female friends and tell the guy to send at least one, basically share it, okay? (laughs) Because this is important. This is not only a you problem. It is not only your organization problem. This is a a societal problem. When we can overcome this this gender inequity, um, our country, wherever you are, wherever you are across the world, will do better. so I will end us on there and say thank you for everyone for being here today. Thank you, Dave, for being here with us today. As always, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya. Take care. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.